Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, it's your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. And we are starting today with Dr. Andrew Wickline, who's an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. He's up in Upper State New York at Genesee Orthopedic and Hand Surgery Associates. And when I say the best of the best, we're going to bring you the best of the best because Dr. Wickline, uh, based on volume is the number one arthroplasty surgeon in the state of New York, which is really quite remarkable if you think about that small little city down in New York, uh, just below where where he also uh, where, just below where he practices. And and it's not just a, a boastful man saying I'm the number one. He has the numbers. Not only does he have the numbers, but he's also got his outcomes. And he can also talk to you very clearly about uh, how well his patients do. Not again being being boastful, but based on the numbers and the data does not lie. It is a pleasure to have you, Dr. Wickline. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me, uh, uh, Scott. It's the fro versus no fro since I'm uh, I'm the complete opposite of you. Yeah, <laughs> we got another hair contrast here going on, but uh, you got a nice full beard, so we like that. So we can maybe put the fro on top of the beard and be all good. Uh, but it's uh, it's great having you on. You know, Andrew, you and I know each other. Uh, from our from our opioid sparing world, as well as a number of society meetings and things that we go to, and we talked a little bit about laser early on, and and you've always been so impressive to me uh, because of uh, of of what you do and how you do it, and I'd love to be able to share that story because the fact that you can do a thousand total joint replacements in a year is really quite remarkable, and I know that that uh, you've got a lot of very specific ways in which you do it, so we'd love to hear your story about the entire process. Well, uh, I guess where to start, you know, first, you know, I, I don't do a thousand, you know, it's about 800 a year. Uh, so let's make sure I, I'm being very honest with the, uh, the numbers. And of course this year, uh, with COVID never going to be that busy. And then last year with my wife's cancer treatment, uh, not that busy, but up until that point, you're right. We, we like to be efficient. We like to be successful and, you know, I'm from West Virginia, a small cinder block house in West Virginia, had no money growing up. And I can remember many times when, uh, you know, if someone was sick, it was, do we go to the doctor or do we not eat? Right. And so I, I have a lot of different thoughts on this. And perhaps that's why I'm still in a very small practice rather, rather than a very large practice with other uh, surgeons. I really like uh, price uh, transparency. Um, and I really like the uh, the thought process of really asking the patient, thinking of the patient as a customer. 
Uh, and that, I think that's where we see the success. Yeah. I mean, I think the patient experience is so important and, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, patients do the talking and it's not like, you know, you just sort of say, Hey, I'm really famous. And I did this in a fellowship and I did that. And people are going to come to you. It's really about, you know, they go to church, they go to work and, and they talk about their experience. And, and what does that experience mean? It means, you know, did you, you know, did you, are you happy with the result of your hip? Did you have to get readmitted to the hospital? Was there, you know, are there infections? And if all those things, they don't really count that, but the people say, you know, look, I did this thing. Dr. Dr. Wickline told me what was going to happen. That's what happened. And I, and I'm doing great. And then they tell everybody else. And that's a, a lot. I think a word of mouth is super important. So, so, I mean, let's talk about, I really want to get some sort of, sort of the nuts and bolts of how you, you have your efficiency. And I know you well, I mean, you, you don't make decisions uh, based on, you know, well, we'll try this or not. I mean, you, you literally will, will try something new and you'll decide, you know, if it's beneficial to the patient, how much time does it take? Uh, and then you'll do a thorough analysis about the data as well. So let's just, let's just roll down here. How many rooms do you run typically on a day when you're operating? So the hospital, I'm very uh, privileged to buy. By working in an area that no one else wants to work, I, I get three rooms on uh, my hospital days. In my surgery center, I have two rooms, and it's definitely less efficient. Um, in general, from the minute I say hello to a patient and sign the leg and sign the paperwork, it's uh, about 32 minutes uh, from that point uh, to when I can drop a knife and, and, and really uh, get that patient uh, on the road to recovery. And so I really look at those numbers. And, and so when you look at 32 minutes to, to prep and drape um, and do anesthesia, now, that's the amount of time it takes to do the hip replacement or to do the knee replacement. And then you have to look on the backside of it. Uh, how long does it take for the patient to have the wound closed? How long does it take for the patient to wake up, to turn the room over, for the staff to get a, a you know, break, to get a drink? And again, it's another 30 uh, minutes or so. And so in general, it, it works in a very... Um, uh, choreographed uh, fashion. My staff are very happy. They know exactly what to expect. Uh, like you said, I try not to um, do things differently every time. We try to, you know, there's always, you have to have some room for for patient uh, uh, characteristics. But in general, as you know, much of the, the steps, most of the steps are the same over and over again. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So you must be pretty demanding on your anesthesia partners as well, right? I mean, if, you, if you're going to sit in there and if you could do a total knee replacement in 32 minutes and it takes the anesthesiologist 40 minutes to do a spinal, that ain't going to fly, right? So you're specific about who you work with? Well, I am fortunate that um, because I'm, you know how most surgeons tell you, they tell the anesthesiologist, oh, I'm going to get this done in a half an hour and it's really, you know, two hours. Um, I'm very clear to the, uh, uh, my anesthesia staff, how much time it's going to take. And it's, I'm generally within four minutes, uh, every single time, uh, from start to finish. And, you know, if, if they see that consistency, then the, 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 the anesthesiologists that want to be, you know, home at a regular uh, time also want to come to your room because you're not making up, uh, stories. This is my time. Uh, you know, we, it's not hard to do. You, you just put, you put a stopwatch in your room, but most guys can't figure that out. No, I think it's fascinating because, you know, that we share, you know, I do, again, I always joke around, you know, I do a sports total knee. That's what my partner says, who's, uh, who's fellowship trained in arthroplasty. Siggy, you're doing a sports total knee. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But, 
you know, my components are in between, you know, 20 and 25 minutes. I mean, uh, and we're really good, you know, for the most part, unless there's deformity, but I don't do a lot of deformity anyway. I usually give that to my partner that does the more difficult cases. But I, I think that if you're, if you're efficient and, uh, you know, these moves are made routinely, uh, and if you're doing 800 cases a year, your eye is amazingly able to identify uh, your balance, your technique, and all those things. It's not you're not skipping steps. You're just efficient with your steps. I don't like to ever be called a quick surgeon. I like to be an efficient surgeon. That's right? correct. There's no reason, you know, Lester Borden said it best, you know, speed comes just through repetition. Uh, and, you know, there's, you're right. When you're trying to do something, uh, just like with racing, when you try to go faster, you end up slower. When you just try to, to, to hit your marks every single time, suddenly that was your fastest lap. And uh, it's, it's no different in the operating room. I think the real key that, that I find is that surgeons need to go and operate with other surgeons. You know, we, when we do residency, what do we do? We, we operate with 50, 60, maybe even 100 different surgeons during that five or six year period of residency and fellowship. And then immediately we get out and uh, we never operate with another surgeon again or very rarely. And I kind of looked at things differently. Every quarter I operate with someone new. I ask at every meeting, uh, uh, I'll go and find the reps and I'll say, who's, um, who's the most amazing surgeon in your town? And, uh, you know, almost always they, they have a, a name for you. And then I'll call that person and say, I want to go operate with you. Can you, can I come in and, and learn something from you? And it, uh, that really has uh, led to my success. It's just, it's really on the job training and it, it's not, it's not going to meetings. If, if going to meetings was a way to become an amazing surgeon, then five years of residency would just be going to a one long you know, lecture hall. Now that's brilliant. You know, I, I got to say that that takes a, you know, it takes a, some courage to be able to say that, that you want to learn something new from someone else. And we don't hear that a lot. And that's actually the first time I've heard a skilled master surgeon saying that he wants to go around and work with other surgeons. You know, I've done that to learn new operations. We've had a few, you know, a few of our friends on that would decided where we're going to try something new and different. But I can't say that I've gone to watch Freddie Fu do an ACL. Uh, it would be a really neat experience. And I think that, uh, so are you still doing that? Is that routine for you or obviously not in COVID? But Every quarter I try to operate with someone new. It, oh, it's absolutely the most profound difference in my practice is learning from my colleagues. Interestingly, you know, uh, it, when I go now, um, I think that the surgeon that I, I visit actually comes away with something uh, as well, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but but honestly, you know, Tiger Woods, he's he's a, a great uh, golf golfer. Does he have a, a pro that helps him? He's got three pros, right? How about F1 drivers? You know, uh, Lewis Hamilton, he's got pros that help him. He's at the top of F1 seven championships. He still has someone coaching him. So, you know, for us to be so naive or perhaps um, maybe there's a better word than that, but uh, I'll be nice for us to think that we're always the best and that we're the best the minute we come out of fellowship. That That's wrong. I'm from West Virginia. My whole life I was told I was second best. So I'm always afraid that, that someone's coming up to, to be better than me. And I think that's unfortunately a, a it's a it's a positive and a negative, right? Uh, no, that's but you're being honest, man. I mean, that's great. I mean, it drives you whatever that 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 uh, process in your childhood and who and who made you as a personality it drives you to 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 do great. And and what are you doing? I mean, at the end of the day, you're helping to heal people, right? And when you take that extra time uh, to make yourself better, 
you know, you're probably not learning how to do a better femoral uh, cut, you know, on the end of the distal femur, but you can certainly watch the processes about how the patients are moving around and what type of regional anesthetic people are doing. And, you know, are there efficiencies? Can you go from 32 minutes down to 28 minutes on your next lap? Things like that, that you take away. But every single time I've ever gone and done an observation with another surgeon, or if I've had people in, I, we always take away as much as we give. I mean, that, that exchange of ideas, you, you are absolutely done on. And looks like these society meetings aren't happening anytime soon anyway. So, you know, it's going to be even more important for us to exchange ideas and have these types of conversations. Yeah, it just frustrates me that we can't get CME for that because there's no incentive for surgeons to do that. But again, let me go right back to residency. If residency was was, uh, going to lectures was the, the way to become a great surgeon, you wouldn't need residency. You would just have five more years of medical school, right? And so it frustrates me that if that's the way we're thinking for residency and for training, then that why is CME only relegated to lectures? You know, I, it's it's ten it's a ten thousand dollar loss every quarter for me to go and fly somewhere and take a day off of work and and operate with someone else, and yet I can't even get any credit for it. Um, but yet uh, I'm going to tell you that is exactly why I have the lowest cost, lowest opioid use. Um, you know, lowest complication rate, highest volume, because I, I listen to my colleagues. Yeah, let, that's a great segue. So let's talk about that. So uh, I, I don't even know if you know this, but I was actually one of the uh, reviewers of your your total knee paper for Joey for uh, for Ira Kirschenbaum. But, uh, you know, those are two really great papers. And I'd like to, to really dive into that because I think our listeners would really like to know, again, the nuts and bolts as to how you're doing this, right? You're doing 800 total uh, total joints a year, uh, and not only are you doing that, but you're you're really your your quality of care uh, is outstanding. It's not, you know, and so you figured out both, you know, efficiency and quality, which is really unique, uh, which then also equates in to reduce costs to the overall system as well. And so you had two papers, you know, one was a 23-hour uh, total knee, one was a 23-hour total hip, and you had long-term follow-up, a bunch of patients. And just just talk to the, to the listeners about what you analyzed in this paper about your personal patients and about uh, the process of getting that research published. So for the total knee paper, and I'm really very proud of that paper, 386 consecutive patients, all comers, non-selected, uh, just basically following my protocol which is, um, you know, uh, yes, multimodal meds, everyone does that. But, you know, I, I only prescribe 10 opioid pills and 86% of my patients use 10 opioid pills or less through 90 days. That is the lowest uh, published anywhere in the country and I think globally. Um, and, you know, the next best paper is out of Mayo. It's 50 pills, uh, you know, it's five times higher you know, you worry about that, right? There's a six, supposedly a 6% risk of chronic addiction after one 24-hour prescription uh, worth of, of opioids. You know, uh, 10 days uh, of opioids, you've got a 20% risk of chronic addiction. You know, uh, this is these are my neighbors. I cannot afford to let them get addicted to these pills. And insurers, employers need to listen to this as well. I mean, it's uh, $10,000 is the average cost to a commercial payer or to an employer for a year's worth of insurance for a patient. Once they become chronically addicted, it goes to $19,800, so almost doubles. So there's not, not just the, the, the societal, the family, families that are splitting or having problems with this and, of course, potential for suicide and, and death. Um, the, the cost, just the cost, even if those patients are, are functional, the cost doubles. So, yeah. 
So I, and look, dude, you're preaching to the choir, you know, I mean, that's like my, my thing is the, uh, is the opioid no, sparing thing. No. We've been, we've been together on that podium before and we, we've been doing it a long time. I want to make it clear though, because I want, I want you to talk even deeper to the, the, in the details of how you do this, because I don't want people to think that you're just saying, oh dude, you're getting 10 pills, suck it up. If you don't, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes to make sure that they, they only need the 10 pills or maybe they don't need any. Can you describe for us the process of communication to the patient and what specific modalities you're doing, perhaps Iovera beforehand, what you're doing intraoperatively and, and the conversation with the patient, because I think that's so important. Okay. So I totally agree. Education is the number one in my mind. That's number one. It's probably worth 40% of the opioid reduction, <clears throat> maybe 25 to 40%, somewhere in there, particularly for the knees. Uh, you got to tell them ahead of time, you know, yes, it's going to be sore, but yes, I'm going to help you take care of your pain. Uh, and then you, you, I have a whole education booklet that they've read through that it, it details the first six weeks worth of uh, what to expect. I mean, day 37, you know, expect that this is what, this is what your leg's going to look like and this is how you're going to feel. I mean, I really try to get uh, into the weeds with them to help them understand what normal is. And I need to, and I try to remind them what, what it would be like if you had a broken ankle, what, you know, would you be amazing at six weeks? No. So first I have to set the stage. You have to set the expectations. And then of course, you know, the operation, the multimodal meds and, and, uh, you know, the Iovera, I do use that, that study that you're quoting is not with Iovera. We did see the cryoablation, uh, after that study, uh, stop. We were still collecting data from patients. We did see about a 33 to 50% reduction in pain scores. Uh, using Iovera on top of my technique, but I also use that pain ball, the uh, Avanos uh, on cue pain ball in the adductor canal. That makes a big difference. I just turned that, uh, I just had a guy out in um, uh, Denver, um, big volume surgeon. He just, this is the first he had heard of it. He just started using it. He said, Andrew, night and day difference, night and day uh, for patients and his cash pay patients. You know, I have a cash pay program just like he does. His cash pay patients actually pay $500 for a second pain ball so that they have less pain. So it clearly makes a difference. So you have to get over that 72 hour window uh, as number one. Uh, and then number two, I do something completely different, I think, than the majority of surgeons. I don't send my patients to therapy. Um, I think therapy can be helpful uh, for those patients who are recalcitrant or just don't understand. But in general, at least in my area, therapy is a 90 minute uh, torture session. And when you listen to patients, when you ask them at six weeks, what, you know, when do you want to do your next knee? What can I do better? They say, I'm never doing that next knee, Dr. Wickline. I like it now, but the last six weeks were torture. I hated going to therapy. They, they pushed me. They sat on my knee. I cried. I screamed. And, uh, you know, if you could make therapy go away, yeah, you can do my other knee. And so that's what I did. I created my own uh, protocol for the first six weeks. It's at home exercise. And I really think that's where the, the, you know, and it's ice and elevation, you know, 40 minutes. So ice and elevation, the first 10 to 14 days, just like you would do for an ankle fracture, just like you would do for tibial plateau fracture. You know, we don't torture those patients. We just let them ice and elevate. Right. So but, I'm just, I know I'm listening to everybody else. They're all saying, all right, what's, what's going on this Wickline guy? He's doing total knees on people. He's not giving them any pain pills and he's not having them go to physical therapy and his results are, are, are getting better and he's happier and the patients are happier. You got to, you got to admit, it sounds a little funny. Five years ago, I, I mentioned this at AUKUS that I was doing this and, and people laughed me out of the room. 
uh, last year at AUKUS, uh, 2019, from the podium, finally, there was the uh, 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 one of the surgeons stated that aggressive therapy may no longer be the most appropriate post-op protocol. So do you give your patients videos? Is there just a paper-based program? Because there's a lot of new, you know, home PT sort of uh, processes that have been rolling out, especially in the setting of the pandemic. Certainly. Uh, you know, I looked into doing a, you know, remote device and it was $300,000 to do this, you know, eight years ago, um, just to get into beta testing. And you know, it seemed like a lot of money for me to, to, to take some risks that way. So I just created a, a value uh, a method, which is simple video, one video, it's about five minutes The patients watch, there's four exercises, um, you, know, you bend the knee, you straighten the knee passively, uh, you do some ankle pumps and you walk once an hour, and that's all you have to do. I, I do think that maybe doing a little heel hang, we've, we've just instituted that to help for some of those patients to get in those last five degrees uh, can help, but it's a simple video and there's a book with the little check boxes every hour. You do it uh, 12 to 14 times a day for the first uh, 10 to 14 days. Yes, it's monotonous, but that's be honest. That's what we all think patients are doing, right? When we send them to the therapist, we assume that the therapist is giving them all these exercises to do at home and they are, and the patients pick the ones that hurt the least. And guess what? The bending and the straightening are the ones that hurt a lot. So they don't do that. So they walk more. They do the things that don't that don't help them. And they, they, they come back and they're happy with themselves because they did 80 percent of what the therapist told them to do. But it was the 20 percent that they needed to do that didn't get accomplished. And that's why you're manipulating those patients. Yeah. So, and we, we learned that too for CPM, right? I mean, when we were all done our training, everybody's like, oh, you're getting a CPM. And so what would they do? They'd sit around in the, in the CPM machine, you know, for six to eight hours a day, but we've got studies now that clearly show if you get up and walk around uh, during that time period, your range of motion is, is, is as good, if not better than when you're just sitting around in a CPM. And I think there's some truth to that. Essentially, what I'm doing is a CPM for five minutes an hour, but the, C the CPM can only get you to about 90 degrees maximum. You have to get over that 90, 95 degree number because that's when the quad starts uh, losing some of its strength uh, and effectiveness to prevent uh, uh, the bend, right? And so, you know, the CPM doesn't ever really get you to that number that you need. And so, But patients think they're doing the right thing. Um, so I have patients just sit in the chair they, uh, uh, you can go to my website, uh, see my exercises. That's andrewwicklinemd.com. Um, at the very top, it says exercises. You can watch my silly little four or five minute video. And that's all my patients do. And so two questions. Uh, are you using cryotherapy other than just saying using ice? Uh, or are you using some elaborate brace or cryotherapy device? You know, again, I like value. And it's hard for me to see value in some of these, you know, $2,700 machines um, that supply cooling. You know, I, I, for years, I've just used the two ice sleeves inside a cloth uh, device, and then they've got two more in the freezer. And uh, sometimes patients will, you know, tell me they wish they had something a little different. But I, I would say maybe 2% of the time patients, you know, say I, I opted for something different, like the, you know, like a cryo cuff type device, air cast type device or whatever. Um, you know, there is some data and there have been some cases where uh, case reports where patients have sued for frostbite. So I'm a little concerned about that. I, I do think the market, um, you know, I, th I think there's there's the there's potential to improve what we're doing. 
But again, from a value standpoint, you know, if, if someone's paying cash, you know, I have a cash basis. I want patients to say I'm getting good value for my money. So uh, I know you keep track of everything. So uh, what's your manipulation rate after total knee replacement? It's 2.2%. What's the national average? 4%. Shocking that you knew those answers, Andrew. <laughs> it's like, oh, you are the numbers man. So, so one of the things that um, that that really is sort of not controversial, but it's definitely out there within the total joint world at this point is you know robots. We had Corey Calendine on last week, who's a big Mako guy. Uh, he does a ton of joints down in Tennessee as well. Uh, what's your thoughts on robots? And do you see that if there's going to be a role in the future, uh, are you, are you interested or are you one of these guys that say, I've been doing this, my brain works well, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to stay with what I got. Well, I've had a kind of change again, I, I, just like therapy, right? It's the convention is you must go to therapy. And, and then I, I listened to patients. They said, I hate therapy. So I, I went against convention and it found that it was better. I have computer navi- I have computer navigation experience for 16 years. Um, uh, it, it definitely gives you consistent x-rays. Uh, I don't see how computer navigation is really a, much different from robotics other than uh, another zero at the end for the purchase price. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that robotics will help uh, with, the alignment to a more personalized fit, but mechanical alignment, I think at this point in my brain, mechanical alignment is no longer the, the correct answer. That means every, every patient's getting a size seven and a half shoe. Um, you know, I wear a size 12. I don't know what, what you, but I, and I know that there are other people that, that wear smaller shoes, right? Why are we giving everyone the exact same alignment? I l- absolutely love your shoe analysis. You know, I'm a, I'm a size 10, but I got a bunion the size of Texas and I can only fit into triple E shoes. So when somebody gives me a standard size 10 shoe, it ain't on my foot. And so I think that's a pretty, uh, that's exactly. a pretty it, hurts. it still hurts. It looks good. It looks like it should be the right shoe, but it still hurts. Well, we definitely haven't figured it out, right? I mean, as many as as 20% of patients are still unhappy after a total knee replacement, depending on what study you're doing. Hips, we, we're doing a lot better as far as, you know, patient board outcomes. So it's an interesting fact. I think that's food for thought and, uh, you know, definitely we should revisit that uh, in the future. So one of the other things before we finish that uh, that you are really passionate about, which I'm not sure that everybody knows, uh, is that you love to actually race cars. And what I mean is you get on a track and you're out there racing cars. I mean, I'm a I'm a car lover. I mean, you're either a car guy or you're not. But, you know, my partners make fun of me. They tell me I change my cars like my underwear. But, you know, I know that I've seen some of your pictures, some pictures behind you there that I can look over and see. So so just give us a couple minutes about about your passion for racing and the similarities or the differences between that and your orthopedic world. Well, I love racing. It's um, I used to like fishing. And the problem with fishing is you get in the trout stream and you know, you're still thinking about patience because, you know, you you, you, know, you, you cast the, the line out and you're, you're watching it, you're mending it, but you, you can still think about patience. When you're doing 140 miles an hour and then, uh, you know, having to woe it down to uh, 74 miles an hour, because that's the absolute fastest that this car can get through that corner. And you need to, to time it just right and be literally on the same one inch of pavement every single time. You know, that, 
you cannot think about patients. So it's a, it's an opportunity for me to turn my brain off, which uh, it, I find it just challenging. I worry about people uh, sometimes too much. And uh, I need a mental break from that. So racing really helps do that. I love the fact that, you know, there's a bunch, just like like I said earlier, you're, you're, you race against other people. And, and at the end of the day, uh, every surgeon should have a report card. And uh, you know, I want to know where I stand with my peers. And if someone's doing better than me, just like the end of racing, I can go over and say, how did you do that in, in turn 10? How, did you, how were you faster than me? He shows me because he wants me to, to push him as well. And uh, it's a real great camaraderie. But at the same time, you know, for patients, the benefit is uh, of us competing is better patient care. So I would love to see a, a physician report card, you know, um, because I, I want to know who's who's better than me so I can go visit. Show me what you're doing. I want to know. Please, you know, anybody that who reads my papers, if, if you're doing something better than me, please reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn uh, so I can come visit. I really want to know what you're doing so that I can bring it back to my little town of Utica, New York. Yeah, that's awesome. Andrew, your 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 story is remarkable. We really want to thank you for, for your time and, and sharing your story with us here at the Ortho Show. We pride ourselves in that we bring the best of the best in the orthopedic world, and, and you really are uh, achieving greatness, and you're trying to help as many people as you can, uh, even beyond the scope of your personal practice by being able to really show your data. Uh, the numbers do not lie, and so we greatly appreciate your efforts. Um, I'm, I'm really surprised to be here. I, you know, I'm just a boy from West Virginia. My grandmother would, my grandmother would be real proud. Let me tell you that. So yeah, I really appreciate it, uh, Scott. Thank you for having me. And uh, I really like that you do these kind of podcasts. Uh, it really helps, I think, uh, get the word out and I can hear from other people what they're thinking. You know, there's lots of stuff we should, we could be doing better, you know? Um, but we, I guess that's for next show. Yeah, man. Well, these, that's exactly what we're trying to do here, man, is talk about the remarkable stories of individual orthopedic surgeons and their contributions. So it's been a pleasure having you on. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. 